So we are starting uh, week two of chapter one. The idea was to do one chapter a week, and that is the idea going forward. Uh, but we covered some details last week in the intro that um, just took up way too much time. And that's okay, because I think it will help us to understand everything in the rest of the book. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon. And we are going to be attempting to finish out chapter one. And I'm going to just do a quick review just to make sure everybody is all on the same page. And, uh, and then we can move forward. So last week we covered the three basic applications of chapter one. And that was talking about how historically it talks about the bride's love for the king. Doctrinally, it talks about the lordship of Christ over the church in Israel. And then devotionally, which is our main focus for this book, our pursuit of Christ and Christ drawing us to himself. And so I've heard it said, and I'll say it again, that the book of Song of Solomon is a book that if you really want to have a good, quality, deep relationship with the Lord, you've got to understand this book. Um, I am really understanding this book for the first time, to be honest with you. Um, I've gone through parts of this book at times in my life, but I've never looked at it in this fashion. And so this is something that's really been a, a great help to my heart and to my life and to my relationship with God. So as far as the introduction goes, we read verse 1. So verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So this is the song of all songs from the King of Kings. And um, he wrote uh, 1,005 songs, and this one is the only one that is recorded in Scripture. So that should be something that should help us take note as to why this is even in there. And this is something very, very special as far as this song is concerned. And then we talked about how out of the five wisdom books, Solomon wrote three of them. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and how they represent Proverbs as the apex of his reign and and likely written at the very beginning. Uh, Ecclesiastes was towards the end of his reign. And the Song of Solomon, uh, some people believe that it was written at the beginning or at the very end. And we took a look last week on how, uh, actually I believe that it was written at the very beginning uh, because of his love relationship with a woman named Abishag, the Shunammite. And, uh, and you can see that in the book of First Kings. It was really, really cool. And then the whole point of looking at that is that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, but only one possessed the qualities of the virtuous woman. And devotionally speaking, only about one out of a thousand Christians will have this kind of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And the whole point of that one that I wanted to share was that even though this kind of relationship is very rare, and there are very few Christians that actually have this close relationship with Christ, it is possible for everyone. It all comes back down to your daily choices and my daily choices. And, um, and so if you find someone that has this kind of a relationship, I mean, you'll, you'll just know it. You just know it. You know it by the way they behave, by the things they say, by the things they do. Um, they're a person that every time you're around them, they just inspire you to walk closer with the Lord just because of who they are. It's not because they're trying. It's just because of who they are. I'm drawn to those kinds of people. I, th- I find them absolutely fascinating. When you find people like that, and they are rare, just be close to them. Learn from them. And that's what you need to do. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in chapter 1. And so then we started talking about the bride speaks to the bridegroom, and that's who is uh, speaking here first. So it is the uh, Shulamite bride speaking to the bridegroom on verses 2 through 7. And, uh, and we'll just go ahead and read where we left off, and then we'll just explain these really, really quick. So verse 2, verse 2. So the bride says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And we stopped there and we spent some time talking about just the whole concept of intimacy and how when we read phrases like that, or in verse 13 where it says, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me, and he shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. 
So whenever we read stuff like that, um, we end up thinking about it in a wrong way. We really do because we are perverted in our thinking. When we think about that, we automatically go sexual because of our culture, because of where we live, because of what's going on. We do. And it may mean that because of the physical intimacy between the bride and, and her husband. But what we're talking about here is this. Proverbs 30 verse 5 talks about how every word of God is pure. Every word. Even these. And do you really think that God would put something in the scriptures that would cause you to stumble in your thinking? He wouldn't do that. Every word of God is pure. So when we look at stuff like this, we have to look at it from that perspective. Over in Eastern cultures, kisses. It's a sign of intimacy. It's a, it's a sign of, of companionship. Um, I mean, that's why in the New Testament, we mentioned this last week, where it says greet each other with a holy kiss. So just because it's kissing doesn't necessarily mean that it's intimate sexual kissing. That's, what I want, that's the whole point that I wanted to bring out. And the same thing with that verse in verse 13, which we'll get at a little bit later, but um, that he shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. And I gave you the illustration last week about Lucy, about how I hold her that way. I mean, yesterday during nap time, I was thinking about it again because I had her on my chest right here. And I was holding her, and she fell asleep before me laying her down for her nap time. And I thought about that verse again. And I thought about how she is laying betwixt my breasts. It's weird for me to say it like that. But she is. She's laying there, and she fell asleep on my chest. And I actually fell asleep, too, for a little bit until I heard the banging of my children over in the room next door. And then I got mad because I thought they were going to wake her up from her nap. So then I laid her down, and then I disappoint my children so anyway but that's the whole point of this phrase here is it's it's intimacy it's intimacy and that's the idea here it's not necessarily sexual it's intimacy it's intimacy right and and i love the verse in matthew six twenty one where it says where your treasure is there will your heart be also and so for this first point here for verse two it is our intimate love favor honor compassion and fellowship with christ rejoices our heart above all else and affects everything about us it affects everything when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it affects everything. If you say you love Jesus, but then your life looks like the rest of the world, you do not have an intimate relationship with Christ. You just don't. Because when you are intimate with Christ and you have a close relationship and you have a close fellowship with him, it affects everything that you do. You begin to make different choices. You begin to think differently because he is in your life and you are in his life. That's how this works. Like the moment my wife and I got married, our lives were never the same any longer. We didn't operate independently. When we do operate independently, we usually have problems because we're not thinking about each other. Our lives are intertwined together because we have a relationship that's supposed to be close and intimate. That's how this is supposed to work in, in the relationship with, between you and Jesus Christ. It's like that marriage relationship. All right, then next, in verse 3, it says, Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. And so we spent some time talking about how the savor of the good ointments, thy name. So the name of Solomon is like good ointments that are poured forth. And we talked about how ointments have uh, very specific scents to them. And oftentimes it's a very good scent. But then ointments have healing properties to them. And so when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, his name brings health. His name brings health. In the Bible, it says in John 20, verse 31, that he brings life. In Acts 4.12, it says that salvation is from no other person except for Jesus Christ. And it's his name. His name. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, it says that he is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And in Ephesians 2.14, it says that he is our peace. So when you take on his name, his name means something. And it means all those things according to what the scriptures say. 
And so the name of Jesus is undefiled, sweet-smelling, valuable, and it heals our infirmities. And then we left off with this point before moving on to the rest. The righteous love Christ and he keeps them undefiled. So we saw there at the end of verse 3 where it says, Therefore do the virgins love thee. And then verse 4 says, Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. So if you compare verse 3 to verse 4, it says, Therefore do the virgins love thee. And then the end of verse 4 it says, The upright love thee. And the idea behind this that we left off with last week is that the righteous love Christ and he keeps them undefiled. God protects your purity. Because if you think about this from this perspective, the virgins love Solomon and the upright love him too. So he is a man who's known for protecting things that are right and righteous. And that's just like Jesus. He wants to protect your purity. And people that are pure love pure things. They do. They hate things that are impure. And so when it comes to Christ and, and your relationship with him, when you are close to him, he will keep you from impurities. He will keep you away from sin. And that's what we've talked, you've heard the phrase before, is that sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And that is so true. Because if I'm not living right, I don't want to be in the Bible. If I'm not making good decisions and I'm not thinking about God and only thinking about me, I don't want to hear what God has to say. But when I stop and I repent from that attitude and then I get into the scriptures, he begins to change my thinking. I mean, even yesterday, I had to talk with Lily about this because I asked her about, um, you know, I wanted her to read. She does a daily reading for like 15 minutes. And so I told her, I'm like, why don't you get your Bible and I want you to just read. And I was just going to have her read First Kings chapter 18. It's the story of Elijah. And she was throwing a huge fit about it. Like she just did not want to do it. And of course, I don't want to make her do it. But I just sat her down. And I'm like, do you know why I want you to read the Bible? And she's like, no. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's work on this. Why do I want you to read the Bible? Because we can learn about God. Yeah. And why do we want to learn about God? Because we want to know him. Okay, yeah. Why do we want to know him? And I just kind of kept going with her. And the whole point, and I got to this, and I said, Lily, I need the Bible in my mind. Because if the Bible is not in my mind and I'm not thinking about God or God's thoughts or whatever, then what do I have? I have my thoughts. I have me, and I am a sinner, and I don't think right about things. I need God's mind in my head so that way I can make better choices because when my life is over, I want to live a life that pleases Him, which means I need to hear what He has to say, and I just worked her on it. And I want to start now with her because, I mean, she's eight and then she's going to be nine and then she's going to be ten and I want her to get these things in her heart I want this to be more than just a place that she goes and participates and has fun with her friends and hears great Bible stories I want her to actually live this stuff out but that's where it starts it starts there and so when we're close to God he keeps us protected he, he does he does not take advantage of us at all alright and so now let's move on to some new stuff so verse 4 look at the first part again of verse 4 it says, draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Okay, so the first part of this verse is what we're going to focus on for the next two points here. So the first thing is this. When Christ calls, we should run. When Christ calls us, we should run. Right at the beginning, it says, draw me, we will run after thee. A heart that is bent towards God in obedience towards the Lord 
when Christ calls, you go. Someone that is not, like their heart is not inclined unto God, that really does not care what God has to say, when Christ calls, they don't move or they go the opposite direction in their life. That's what they do. So what kind of heart do you have? Because, hold your spot here, go over to John, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10. Someone read verse 27. Kent. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Okay, this can be a really convicting verse if you let it settle in. My sheep hear my voice. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Those that belong to God, when God speaks, they hear it. There are some people that struggle with their salvation because they see other people being convicted, maybe, or they see other people living a certain way, or when when someone reads the scriptures and God is teaching them things out of the scriptures and it moves them in their heart, they don't have that in their life. And there's a good reason why they should be struggling, because God says, my sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice. That's important. And hearing is not just listening to what the person says. It's more than that. It's hearing it and then doing it. That's the point. For example, my kids, they know, by now, hopefully, they know that if they're outside and they're playing and I don't know where they're at, I will go outside and I'll just make a sharp, loud whistle. And their ears perk up. And then I'd like look through the window to see what they're doing. And then the last time this happened, Lucas was like, Lily, that was dad. We need to go. And then boom, and then they come over. And I'm like, glad. I'm very thankful. But it took me a while to condition my children to do something like that. <laughs> it took some training, but finally they did it. I want them to do that. I want them to hear my voice. If we're in a situation where they could get hurt or they could hurt another kid or something, when I yell their name, Lily, I want her to stop. I want her to stop what she's doing so that way she can hear what I have to say. That's God in your life. There are times where we make dumb decisions or we're about to make a dumb decision and he's yelling your name and he's telling you to stop. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me. So this is the importance of being in the Bible daily. And this is the importance of, of, there are days that I, I don't feel like getting into the Bible and I fight with the desire of just struggling But when I remember who God is, and I remember that he is my Lord, and I remember what he's done for me, and I know how stupid I am, and I can see that based on my track record, that I need him, and so I get over myself, and I get into the Bible because I need to hear from him. If I don't hear from God, I'm not going to make good decisions. That's something that you guys have got to get in your heart. And I know that we struggle, but you have got to get to the point where Okay, I don't feel like getting in the Bible today. I don't care. I don't care. Get in it. You need it. Get over that feeling. Get over that emotion. You need to hear from God. You have to. If you don't hear from God, then all you have left is you. It's like what I'm talking about with Lily. All you have left is you, and you're not going to make good decisions. I don't care how smart you think you are or how well you think you have things figured out. I have been there. Oh my gosh, that is like my mindset. I am, I am a person where I feel like I have stuff figured out. And if I don't, I'm going to figure it out. And I've got a plan. And, I've, 
And I have learned so many times the hard way that I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I need God to tell me what to do. And that's me just being 34. And I, it may seem like to you guys that I have it all together. I don't. I mean, I just taught JBI on Thursday night and I talked about pastoral care. And this is what I told them. And this is so true in my life. When I'm going in and I'm going to go talk to somebody that's in the hospital or that they're struggling or that they're in sin or whatever, I don't have a plan. How can I have a plan? I don't know what they need at that point in time. I, don't, I know that I'm supposed to love them and I'm supposed to care for them. I might have a few verses in my heart and in my mind about the circumstance, but until I'm in that moment, I don't know what to say to them and I don't know how to approach them. Like with stuff with funerals and stuff and grieving families and things that are, I mean, just flat out difficult. I have no idea what to do. And so the only reason why I'm a comfort to these people whatsoever is because, number one, I'm willing to go. That's important. But secondly, I need God. And if I'm spending time with him, and then before I even go in, and I'm already trying to walk with him that day, and I'm like, God, I have no idea what to say. I need you to help me. And I honestly believe that he helps me in those circumstances because I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do. And so that's the importance of being on a daily walk with the Lord and being close to him because you have no idea what each day is going to unfold in your own life or in the lives of other people. But as long as you're walking close with him, it doesn't matter. If you're walking close with him, then you already are going to be able to have the answer. It's like, you know, and I keep thinking about pastoral care because I just taught about it on Thursday. I made the statement that uh, loving people all the time no matter what's going on, it's so important because when things go bad in their life and they're embarrassed about what's going on in their life, they need to know that they might be embarrassed to come to you and talk to you about what's going on, but they already know that they love you or that they, they love you as far as your struggles and that they love you as, your, as a person. They care about you deeply. So even though you might be embarrassed to talk to them about it, you already know they're going to love you and they're going to help you. That is so valuable. I'm tired of Christians where they don't love people, and then when things go wrong, then they decide to love people. That's not how this is supposed to work. We are supposed to love people, and then when things go wrong in people's lives, then we can help them even more because we've already been loving them in the process. This is how this is supposed to work, but it doesn't work in churches, and I don't know why other than the fact that we're just selfish people. But all these things come from an intimate relationship with Christ. That when he calls, we run after him. That we follow him with everything that we've got. If he says go, we go. If he says stay, we stay. If he says no, we stop what we're doing. One of my main frustrations in parenting is my kids just don't do what I say. Or they have in their mindset what they want to do. And they just go ahead and do that anyway, regardless of what I tell them. And so it's the same thing with God. And I know that I do that with God. And I hate that about myself. All right, so there's that one, that draw me, we will run after thee. And then the second part of this is that the king hath brought us into his chambers in verse four. We are welcomed into his dwelling place. This is huge, in the words of Donald Trump, huge, it's huge. Go to Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. Verses like this need to start standing out to you, and you need to dwell on them and chew on them and meditate on them. You've got to. These ones are just 
amazing and they will change your life. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 5. Alright, it says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Okay, the reason why I called this one out is because in Romans chapter 5, it talks about you and I in our sinful state, we are enemies of God. We are the enemies of God. And here it says that we, he has a plan where he wants to adopt us as children. And then verse 6, where he's made us accepted in the beloved, in the beloved. That we are accepted by God. We went from a situation where we were his enemy, and then he has this plan where he wants to make us his children, and now we're accepted. That's amazing. That means that as an enemy, like imagine this for a second. As an enemy, when you walk in to the ruler of the people that you're opposing, do you think you can just go and knock on that door and go, um, hey, just want to have a quick chat. Um, there's just something I've just been thinking about and just wanted to... No, it's not going to go well. You walk in there and you're dead because you're the enemy. But now with God, at any point in time, the book of Hebrews says this beautifully. At any point in time, you can knock on that door and never be bothering God. And he welcomes you in and says, ha, I've been waiting for you. I can't wait to spend time with you. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? That is a blessing. It's just... I, we take this for granted so much that at any point in time, we can go to him and we're welcomed into his chambers, that we have a place there, that we belong there, that we're accepted and the beloved, that we're not, no matter what we do, like you can do the most heinous thing in the world if you're saved and you're still accepted. And that may sound crazy and unbiblical, but it's not because of what the Bible says. Now you need to get right with God for sure, but you still have a place there. I had a conversation with a couple last week. I mean, it was week before. It doesn't matter. Um, but they're going through something in their life right now. And um, when I was talking with them, I, I made this statement. I said, you know, our church, the church should always be a place where you feel accepted and loved. Always. Always. And I know sometimes people or people and they're just dumb and they just they, they're judgmental or they might make people feel a certain way, whatever. And that's their fault. They're wrong for doing that. But the way this is supposed to operate is the church is supposed to be a place where you feel accepted and that you are loved no matter what's going on. Because your family should be the same. Your family should be a place that no matter what happens in your life, that you should always be accepted no matter what's going on in your life. That's the way it should be. You know, I know it's not always that way, just like it's not always that way in churches, but that's the way it's supposed to be. And as I'm talking with this guy, I said, all right, here's the deal. What we're going through is very, very difficult. And I get it. I said, but here's the thing. The only reason why you would be alienated is because of your own heart attitude. That's it. Because I love you and I care about you and I want to help you. And I want to be a part of the solution and I want to try to get you to move forward. But if he ends up just going off the rails and thinking vain imaginations about me or about other people in the church or whatever, then he's gone and he won't come back. And I've known several people in my life at this church that have done that. And thankfully, some of them have come back. But they've alienated themselves not because of the people here, but because of themselves. 
And that's what happens. That's what happens in a lot of families. Because I've seen that happen too, where kids or even parents end up alienating themselves from their family because they have a bad attitude about whatever and they just think things about other people that aren't true and then it's just a complete wreck. It's a total wreck when it wasn't even true to begin with. And now it's just a big giant mess. With God, we are always accepted. Always. Always accepted. The only reason why we feel we're not accepted is because of us and because of our own attitude towards God. But we are always accepted. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you're struggling with. You are always accepted with God. Always. 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 You are always accepted with God. Get that in your head and get that into your heart. And let that be the truth that fights against your vain imaginations. All right. Move on. Move on. All right. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Song of Solomon, chapter 1. I got to keep moving. All right. Verse 5 and 6. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. All right, so the whole idea with this one is that we are not worthy. That's your blank. We are not worthy to be Christ's, but we are pleasing, proper, and suitable to him. That's verse 5 and 6. Because she says here, I am black, but comely. Now, what does comely mean? What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean beautiful. Acceptable. Acceptable. Mm-hmm. Average. I'm average. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, acceptable. What else? What else? What else we got? Comely. Proper. I kind of put it in your guys' point there. Pleasing. Proper. Suitable. It's right there. That's comely right there. Just want to let you know about that. It's a word we don't use that often. But it's acceptable. That you're accepted. Now, this is really easy for us to understand. Because um, I remember in high school, and Andy will laugh because he'll probably remember who I'm talking about. Um, I remember this one time, there was this girl who was a really cute girl. And she was attracted to me. But it ended up going nowhere because her attitude stank. I mean, really bad. Really bad. She had beautiful countenance, you know? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she was very pretty. And she was interested in me. And we were going to go to a dance together. And she called herself a Christian. But I saw the way she dressed. And it was a little on the slutty side, just being honest. And I'm like, you're a Christian, but this is how you're dressing, and you're showing off stuff, whatever. And then you have attitude that is just like, ah, and it made her ugly to me. It just did. You know, she had a she she was beautiful face, but terrible countenance and attitude and the way she behaved, and so she was no longer beautiful at all, at all. <laughs> That's Andy's opinion. <laughs> I'm sure there's more commentary you could give him anyway. But the idea behind that that I wanted to share with you is that even though 
she says she makes a mention about her appearance that she's black but comely you know she could be black in the pigmentation of her skin but likely i think it's because of verse six where it says look not upon me because i am black because the sun hath looked upon me so i think that she worked outdoors and so she was just super tan and so the the pigmentation of her skin was affected by the sun because she constantly worked outdoors and so um but in the bible as far as god's patterns same way with numbers he's the same way with colors and in the, in the Bible, if you take the word black and you look it through the scriptures, it always has a negative connotation. Always. And so when you look at that in the scriptures, she says here, I'm black but comely. So she's understanding, I am not worthy to be Solomon's, but I'm accepted. And that kind of an attitude keeps you close to God. Yeah? Um, I looked this up earlier, but the tabs of Kedar were made out of like skins of black goats and stuff. Yes. Yep, that and the curtains of Solomon, both of those are also black things as well. Yep, good point. And so that's something that's just amazing for us to think about is that we in our life, we are tainted by sin and it's not pretty and yet we're still accepted. I love that about God. And yet we are proper and suitable. I wish we had time to go to some of these verses. In Revelation 1, it talks about how Christ loved us and gave his life for us and shed his blood for us. It's just amazing. I love that about him and how he's done that for us. Because I don't, I'm not worthy of that, but yet he loves me anyway. I'm not, I don't deserve God's love, and yet he's chosen to do it anyway. And that's what Solomon has done with this Shulamite bride. All right, and then look at verse 6 again. It says, Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. And then here's the point, the next point. My mother's children were angry with me, they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. So our love for Christ will often make others angry. They will. When you love Christ and you have a close relationship with him and you begin following him, it's going to tick some people off. And some of you, it might be your family. I mean, all of you at least have one or two friends that will be mad at you for doing things that are right. You know why? It makes them look bad. They already are convicted of the sin in their life. And then when you take a stand for what's right and true, they get mad at you. They want you to behave like them. Because if you behave like them and you call yourself a Christian and they don't, then automatically religion means nothing because you've now stooped to their standards. That's how this works. That's why in my life, I had I have testimony of testimony. Andy, you've got the same thing of in high school when we took a stand there were oftentimes people that would want to drag us down and corrupt us and try to make us go back to, like, to your old life in order to make themselves feel better. It's weird. It's spiritual warfare. So your love for Christ will make people angry. And here, it's family, which I think is very interesting. And the next point, and this goes along with verse 6 as well, we should be known as hard workers in the vineyard. She was. The Shulamite bride was a hard worker in the vineyard. And when you get some time later, look up Luke 20. Um, Luke 20 is the, is the parable of the vineyard, and I love this one because basically what it has is it, it's um, uh, God entrusting his work, and when you study out the parable, you find out he entrusted his work unto the nation of Israel. And time after time after time, the nation of Israel just kept, you know, basically backstabbing the owner of the vineyard, God. And so then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, fine, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And then they saw him, and then they decided to kill him, and that was Jesus, and Jesus is speaking this. 
And so then after that, and God says, and Jesus tells him, he's like, all right, so what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? The owner of the vineyard sends his son. His son is now murdered. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do? And the Pharisees answered, he's going to cast out those guys who are taking care of the vineyard and replace them with new people. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-huh, that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And so in that economy, doctrinally speaking, God has cast out the nation of Israel and has put us in to do his work in the vineyard. We need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. If we're not going to be faithful, then he's going to cast us out, which is the whole story of the Laodicean church out of Revelation 3, and he's going to put Israel back in, and they're going to finish out the job during the tribulation. So here, she's known as a hard worker in the vineyard. When it comes to your life, how much investment do you have in the work of the Lord? Are you involved in discipleship? Are you sharing your faith at all, even just a little bit? If you're not, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. If you have an intimate relationship with Christ, you will be a hard worker in the vineyard. There's so much work to get done. There's too much work for all of us to even do if we did it full time. There's always work to be done. A Christian should never be bored. Ever. Ever. If you struggle with that kind of an attitude, it's because you're not seeing it right. And I get it because I've been in your shoes and I've said those words and I've said I'm, I'm on board. And the reason why I'm bored is because I'm not thinking about the things that God wants me to think about and I'm not doing the things that God wants me to do. There's always people to reach. There's always people to love. There's always people to talk to. There's always matters to be praying about, to be spending time with people and doing things. There's always things to do. All right, and then lastly, verse 7. I love this verse. Tell me... O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? So the Shulamite bride desires to go wherever Solomon is, and she's asking, where do you feed your flock? I want to go where you are. And then at the end, she's like, why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? We should long to be where Jesus Christ feeds and rests. We should. We should long to be there. We want to be where he is. And nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. That's why she said, For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? There are some people in their Christian life, if they can be close to a person, then they feel like that they are a more mature Christian. That's not how this works either. Like just because you can be close to a person who might be more godly than you, then you somehow think that you're more godly as a result? No, 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 no. Don't settle in your relationship with God to substitute him with somebody else. You can follow that person, but you're only following that person because you want to learn how to follow him. That's biblical discipleship. Because there are people that turned aside by the flocks of the companions of Solomon, but she's like, no, 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 no. I don't want anybody else. I don't want to follow anybody else. I want to follow you. I want to follow God. I want to be where he is. I want to be where Solomon is. Yes. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. And a lot of Christians just satisfy themselves with a cheap substitute. They do. All right. And then we have the next point here, 8 through 11. And this is where the bridegroom speaks to the bride. In verse 8, it says, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women... Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. 
So if you don't know where to go, Shulamite bride, thou fairest among women, follow the footsteps of the flock. Do you see it? This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Christ tells us the way to go to be fed and to find rest. So those are your two blanks there, fed and rest. Christ tells us the way to go to be fed and to find rest. And guess where you go? You follow the footsteps of those that have gone before you. This goes back to what I've already talked about. If you want to be close to Jesus Christ, find someone who's close to him and follow their lead. Don't follow them, follow their lead because you want to learn how to love him. Follow the path of those that have gone before you. This is such an incredible biblical truth. Um, Jeremiah 6.16 talks about that. Deuteronomy 32 verse 7 talks about that. It talks about go and ask for the old paths. Go and find them and then walk in them. A lot of Christians are trying to find a new way of doing church. Mm, It's not going to work out. Find someone who actually is in love with God and follow their lead. That's what he says. And then, verses 9 through 11... I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. So a lot of bling. Jesus Christ sees us as strong, beautiful, and precious and clothes us in his riches. And that is so true. I wish we had more time to look at some of this stuff, but Isaiah 61.10 talks about how he beautifies the meek with his salvation. The only thing that is good about me are the things that God has done. That's it. Everything else is just whatever. It doesn't mean anything. The only benefit that I am to God and to the people in this world is the things that God has done in me. And that includes the salvation that he's given me. That's it. That's all I've got. All right, and then the last point here, the bride speaks to the bridegroom. And we'll look at verses 12 through 14. While the king sitteth at his table, my spike nerd sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of Engedi. All right, so when you study these ones out, this is really cool. Our intimacy, our intimacy with Christ is a stronghold. Stronghold is the blank in the wilderness. Our intimacy with Christ is a stronghold in the wilderness anointed by precious ointments. So in here, verse 12, she mentions spikenard. Verse 13, myrrh. Verse 14, campfire. Now campfire is not like a campfire, just that way you know in case you're thinking of the wrong thing. It's another, it's an aromatic plant. So it's just a plant that sends off a beautiful smell to it. So three things here, spikenard, myrrh, and camphire. These are precious ointments. These are rich smells. And the, the, it ties it all together with this, the vineyards of Engadai. When you study out Engadai, you find out this is the place where David ran to when he was being pursued by Saul for his life. So the one place that David went to and he felt safe was the caves of Engadai. And here, there are vineyards. And so when you are close with God, and this is why I said it this way, that your intimacy intimacy with Christ is a stronghold in the wilderness. It is the only place that keeps you steady. That's it. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how crazy things get, 
It is a place you can always go to where you can feel safe, where you can rest, where you know there might be some crazy stuff going on, but it just helps you to be at peace in that relationship with Him. And it doesn't matter where you are, at any point in time of the day, you can always flee unto Him and have that stronghold in your heart and in your spirit. And that's what the world's looking for, but they're just not willing to do what God has told them to do. Verse 15 and 16. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. All right, so this first part here, I like this. It says, we ought to be daily captivated by the fair, holy, pure, clean, and undefiled countenance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, she says that his eyes are as dove's eyes. Well, I could tie that back to Luke 3.22. That's when your cross-reference is there. Uh, Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came down as a dove. And that whole, the Spirit of God brings peace. And so it's very peaceful eyes. Uh, but Revelation 1, 12 through 17 gives a, an idea of the countenance of Jesus Christ. And we ought to be daily captivated. Now, one of the things that I've, I've learned along the way is that as life just beats against you constantly over and over and over again, it can be very easy to just grow tired in your relationship with God. It can just be very, very easy to lose the desire to be with Him. And, and I'm telling you, you know something's up when that starts to happen. Like in my heart, when I feel like that's starting to happen, I need to stop myself and I need to go back and I need to remember. It's like the in Revelation chapter 2 where it talks about the church at Ephesus that thou hast left thy first love. And then it says, repent and do the first works. I have to go back. I have to go back to the gospel. I got to go back and remember what he's done for me. I have to go back and I have to think about who I am and the mistakes that I've done and how he loves me anyway. And those things just stoke the fire of my relationship with God every single time, every single time. And then I mentioned that last part where it says, also our bed is green. The place where we rest and abide in Christ is green. And now, if you look up the word green in the Bible, the color, it is associated with life. It brings life, health, and nourishment. Life, health, and nourishment. Every time you spend some alone time with Jesus Christ, it should give you life. It should revitalize your relationship. This is a real thing. So if you get to the point, like let's say tomorrow, let's say you get up, or maybe you're in study hall, or maybe it's before you go to bed, and you read the Bible. If you read the Bible, and nothing happens in here, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It is. There's something not right. Every time you spend some close quality time with God, there should be always something inside your heart that He is convicting you of, that He is drawing you to, that He's reminding you of. There should always be something. If there's nothing there, there's a problem. You need to go back, you need to pray, you need to figure it out, you need to talk to somebody. Because the moment that happens in my life, I just talked about it, I, there's something that's wrong and it's going to be a train wreck. I'm going to start making bad decisions. So you need to remember that. Think about that. And then verse 17. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. Okay, so those are two types of wood, cedar and fir. And the place where we dwell with Christ is made of the best materials available. If you look up cedar in the Bible, cedar is strong, tall, majestic. And fir was used to make musical instruments. So I like that balance between those two. You've got the cedar, which is super strong, the strongest trees in the woods of that area, and nothing could break the cedar. 
And then fur was used to make musical instruments. It's like, what a balance between strength and yet having the ability to just soothe and to comfort someone. And I like that about Jesus Christ. And both of these woods were used to build Solomon's temple to the Lord. And you can see that in 1 Kings 5, 8 through 10. And so I'm going to leave you with these questions. Based on all the stuff that we went, here's, here's where my questions are to you. Are you attracted to Jesus Christ more than anything else? Are you attracted to Jesus Christ? Or have you lost the wonder of your relationship with him? When you think back and you think about your relationship when you first got saved and how you felt, have you lost that? Because there are times where I've lost that in my life. And I need to go back and I need to remember. Is there anything you cherish above Jesus Christ? And the thing that I get out of all this between the Shulamite bride and Solomon is that true intimacy is exclusive. It's exclusive. You can't let anything else in. You can't. It's you and him, and nothing else can get in between you. I want you guys to have that kind of relationship with Christ. That's the kind of relationship that I want. And I know there's some things that I could be doing to be even closer. All right, so that's chapter one. There's a lot that we missed. Like I mentioned last week, um, you need to take some time and chew on this stuff. Look up these cross-references. Spend some time in it, because... It will help you tremendously in your walk with Christ. All right. Anything else before we close? Okay. All right. Rick, you want to pray? Close this out?